Enjoy this roundtable discussion on the journal article, Effect of Osteopathic Manipulative Therapy on Generalized Anxiety Disorder. This is episode 103 of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Green, a third-year osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine resident at Michigan State University. As promised in 2024, we are going to spend more time discussing research articles related to osteopathic medicine. This evening, I will be discussing with both Dr. Jesse Guasco, a board-certified psychiatrist and ONMM specialist, as well as Dr. Barry Kenny, a second-year ONMM resident, the article, Effect of Osteopathic Manipulative Therapy on Generalized Anxiety Disorder, published in the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association in March 2020. This all came about because Dr. Kenny brought up this interesting article in our monthly journal club. It's not too often we tie the link between OMT and how it, how it may play a role in psychiatric ailments like generalized anxiety disorder. So I appreciate you both for being willing to discuss this article. So if you guys want to start out, Dr. Guasco, you've been on the podcast before, so... Um, Barry, you haven't been on the podcast. Maybe if you want to share just in a one-liner a little bit about yourself so the audience can get to know you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, hey, guys. Um, Dr. Barry Kenny here. Um, has been, um, I'll let you guys know, I'm a second-year uh, O&M resident at Michigan State uh, University. Um, from Originally from Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, went to school at the University of Minnesota, uh, majored in uh, kinesiology, and then went to medical school uh, down at Des Moines University in Iowa. Um, the interest in mental health, um, which is what kind of um, led to, to presenting this article at Journal Club, and I'm happy to, to talk more about it. Yeah. Dr. Guasco, you want to give any intro, any one-liner about yourself, things you've been up to? Uh, well, I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've been on the podcast a few times. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, Jesse Guasco, Michigan State uh, University faculty. Uh, kind of split my time between psychiatry and OMM, uh, leaning into, um, you know, at least the scope of, of my, I guess, the lens of which I look through is focus on how mind and body meet in uh in the presentation of pain and somatic dysfunction um and those are the areas i'm interested in my clinical work yeah that's great so it's a great segue into into this article barry is going to kind of lead us through the article and summarize it for us and then we'll talk about pros and cons and um of the article so yeah barry if you want to if you want to start out be great cool yeah happy to um so yeah the study uh so that was based in canada um this clinic called the the start clinic um it's more of an alternative um, therapy clinic that focuses more on mental health um patients so they looked at the effects of osteopathic manipulative therapy on generalized anxiety disorder um and wanted to see how 
OMT could be an adjunctive therapy for patients with, um, with GAD, uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, so it was an open label, non-randomized black box study uh, took place at a, the health clinic in Toronto, Canada. Um, they looked at adult patients aged 18 to 65 uh, with a primary diagnosis of moderate to severe GAD um, with or without comorbidities. Um, the study took place uh, between June 2014 and January 2015. Um, so the patients who qualified for the study, they received five sessions, uh, individually ta tailored um, OMT sessions um, over the course of about eight to nine weeks. Um, and they used basically three different scales to evaluate the effects of OMT on their primary disorder uh, GAD. So they looked at the Hamilton anxiety scale, the Beck anxiety inventory, and the intolerance for uncertainty scale. Um, and they showed in summary that there were significant reductions in the total HAM scores, as well as the intolerance for uncertainty scale um, scores. Um, but the Beck anxiety inventory score was not found to be um, much change significant with OMT. Um, and that's kind of the, the summary of the study um, in general. So, yeah. So yeah. I guess maybe Dr. Guasco, thank you, Barry, for that summary. That was, that was really helpful and really, really good and clear. Um, there'll be some other things that we can clarify. Dr. Guasco, if you could talk maybe just a little bit about anxiety and maybe why, why this, this is an important study um, when it comes to a potential treatment for anxiety. Yeah, so, um, you know, generalized anxiety disorder is, um, you know, as they mentioned in the, uh, in the study, I think in the introduction, um, it's, you know, most anxiety disorders um, are pervasive throughout life. So they have this kind of waxing and waning nature to them. And, you know, based on the severity of people's stressors or the stressors in people's lives at the time, their current emotional state, um, uh, maybe even their physical condition. There's all kinds of different things that weigh into, you know, people's anxiety state, but generalized anxiety disorder kind of defined more by uh, this persistent kind of uh, worried sort of state where uh, they can't really turn their worry down. You know, like the, the knob is always up to, you know, eight, nine, 10. And even though they, you know, they, they try, it's hard to turn the worry off. Like most people can without this, you know, it, it, it's like they can delay it off into another time and worry when they need to sort of thing. And this gets in the way of uh, their ability to sleep because they're, you know, their, their body feels really tense and keyed up, at, you know, and they can't really sleep very well. A lot of times they're really irritable. Um, and so it, it affects the whole system. And I guess when I say tense and keyed up, that kind of ties into the physical aspects of anxiety from the standpoint of they're just the people that can't feel like they really can't relax or a lot of them uh, just feel like they can't relax. And so you get a lot in the soma, uh, the anxiety sort of physical response in the soma. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, the study, I think, is really important because there's just a lack of, of studies in the mind body world, especially with osteopathic 
in the osteopathic realm, uh, looking at anxiety treatments with, um, you know, with OMT, you can find maybe some in, in massage and, and, uh, maybe some in the chiropractic world, although I'm less familiar with that. Um, but I think it's just really important to start adding to the body of, of, of evidence for, uh, for osteopaths. Yeah. Um, absolutely agree with that. Um, generalized anxiety and OMT. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting in the study that the, the Beck anxiety inventory survey that they handed out to the patients, they didn't have statistically significant improvements. And so you talked about how anxiety and being constantly worried at an eight, nine, 10, and not being able to turn that off. Why do you think that their Beck anxiety inventory survey did not improve? Meaning the, the, the physiological, physical manifestations of anxiety. Do you think that the inventory, the, the Beck anxiety inventory scale is not a good measure or an accurate measure of the physiological changes that anxiety may provoke or, or why do you think that is? No, it's a, um, it's a good question. And they speak to this in the study a bit too. Um, is my volume okay? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, they speak to it in the study too, in the sense that the uh, Hamilton uh, uh, scale is a, a little bit more of an all-encompassing aspect all the aspects of, of anxiety or of anxiety, it covers a lot of different things, uh, cognitive and some of the physical things too. Whereas the Beck anxiety uh, inventory is more like a, if you look at it, it's kind of a, most of it is physical stuff. So it's like, a, it's like all the symptoms of panic really. Um, <clears throat> and I think because those two things are different, it doesn't talk a lot about mm. the cognitive side and, um, you know, the, the, the hand may, may pick up more things that even that uncertainty scale, which I'm not super familiar with. I, I've, I've never really used that, but it, I think it picks up more of that, like uh, the cognitive aspects of anxiety. And so the two of those kind of being more similar, it would make sense that those two would, you'd see uh, like similar changes from, the, um, from the, the patient population in this particular study as opposed to more of the physical aspects of anxiety, which you see from the back. So that's, I think that's a, one of the, one of the things that, that you could say may have uh, accounted for the difference. Okay. So Beck, you said is a little bit more tailored to panic, like physical manifestations of panic. Yeah. I mean, like all the symptoms that you have I mean, with panic, but like, like, but all the physical symptoms of anxiety, uh, the old more overt physical symptoms of anxiety, I think are picked up in the, in the Beck inventory and not a lot of the, the worry, cognitive, you know, fear of uncertainty sort of stuff like that. That stuff is not, not really picked up in that scale. So I can, I have it here in my hands. I can just read, read through it really quickly. They mm -hmm. talk about, um, so you check not at all mildly, but it didn't bother me much. Moderately, it wasn't pleasant at times or severely, it bothered me a lot. They talk about numbness or tingling, feeling hot, wobbliness in legs, unable to relax, fear of the worst happening, dizzy or lightheaded, heart pounding, racing, unsteady, terrified or afraid, nervous, feeling of choking, hands trembling, shaky, unsteady, fear of losing control, mm -hmm. uh, difficulty in breathing, fear of dying, scared, hot, cold sweats, face flush. Yeah. 
So, yeah, a little bit more physical manifestations. Yeah, mostly. Okay, not yeah. so much cognitive, although there are a few. Yeah. And systemic. Yeah. Okay. We've got Dr. Juarez here as well. He came in. He was on a phone call. Had to take an important phone call, so he is joining us as well. Hello, all. He is one of our stellar third-year ONMM residents here at MSU. Happy to be back. Um, and uh, the the mind-body aspect to well, life, but also with what we do in clinic really fascinates me. So I'm curious. To, I was curious to see uh, Barry's paper discussed further, um, especially because. I think we are getting to a point in which we are, we are recognizing that there is a somatic, the visceral somatic reflexes is real. It's prominent. It happens. This, the, the, you know, people have those actual bodily symptoms. Um, and if we're, if we're a specialty of treating the body or at least addressing the body, then maybe sometimes it has to, we have to do that balance point that you're, that you always talk about Dr. Quasco. Yeah. yeah. Mind. Involve the mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it'd be, I think it would have been interesting in the study if they had, uh, which I don't think they could have because they tailored and they spoke to this. They really tailored treatments to each individual patient, which is, you know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. obviously very osteopathic as to not have a yeah. specific script that you'd go off of, but or a protocol, right. treatment protocol. Um, yeah. But it would be, well, actually, maybe they did. Did they speak to some of the areas that they treated more? Uh, more they, so? Yeah, they, they treated. Like the, they said the most common areas. Oh, yeah. Um, I that. Yeah. They said no, no two sessions were exactly identical, but the common areas were, um, you know, upper cervical, thoracic, um, coastal vertebral, coastal transverse joints, the thoracic diaphragm, and then little bit of cranial um as well temporal um sphino sphenoid and sphenopetrosol suture mm -hmm. om suture um but yeah so each but each session one of the limitations here is that none of it's hard to reproduce what they did because at each each basically subject had different treatment so um in one way that's good right because each I think that's important to tailor, you know, tailor your treatment to, to your patient, which I think we do every day, but it's hard to reproduce that in the study um, when everyone received a little bit different, you know, different techniques. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think, you know, it's also probably should mention that, you know, this was done in Canada. This was done not by osteopathic physicians. I think we should probably clarify. Um, but by osteopathic um, therapists in Canada. Um, so just a, a subtle dis distinction, one going to medical school, one going to school specifically for becoming an expert in manipulative techniques. Um, Mick was gonna ask a question to you, Dr. Guasco. Yeah, so I think this it adds to kind of what we're talking about pretty well right now with the whole um, standardized treatment versus keep things very uh, uh, loose, almost for lack of better words, with the, every presentation, um, because 
when I, when I'm looking at some of these surveys, I, the first thing that comes to mind is okay. So they're obviously in a constant chronic fight and flight response. Their sympathetic tone is always driven on a higher level. Not always. I shouldn't put all those sort of definitive yeah. words, but um, it's a, compared to the average individual or a baseline for that we can come to expect. It is at a higher level. So if they're on a chronic acute. Um, condition of or chronic versus acute so chronic chronically anxious in which they are chronically in a heightened sympathetic tone uh, is it possible then that their own body their own on, on a cellular level uh, which includes the whole endocrine process of excreting the cortisol that's responsible for a lot of that sort of stress sort of i guess physiological symptoms of the numbness, tingling, the flushing, the indigestion, you know, just what I'm getting to, I'm sure is making sense. But is it is it possible that if they're chronically in that state, that their own body starts to register a new baseline, that at, a, at some degree, it would take a lot of time to uh, reach a reversal point. Oh, man, I can see why this was hard for me to, for you to get what I was trying to say earlier. But um, I guess DNA, cellular level, they are being changed basically because of their own epigenetic condition on a, on a conscious cognitive level. They are constantly stressed. So now that their body is getting used to that, it would take a lot of time to just simply treat the, the cognitive part to impact the body part. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're saying would just cognitive treatment make a difference in the body changes that have taken place because the HPA axis has been changed so much? Right. And the well, that cognitive improvement was noticed, but on a physical level, it was not noticed as an improvement. And would that mainly because it might not be done for long enough because they have been anxious yeah. or having uh, general anxiety disorder for the last 10 years? And would they need some sort of equivocal time frame in order for the body to also start responding? No, I think that's it. I mean... That is a great question, and I I would say it could be one of the explanations because you know I mean, you've been treating patients you know long enough to know that things do take time, and, the, and a lot of these patients have been because it's typically they've had this for years and years um, that 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 there are a lot of changes that have you know hit a new homeostasis in their body, and and it you know to make some of these changes over time can. Um, it takes it it can take a while and so that might be one of the reasons that could be a, an explanation as to why some of these things are different i don't know if that's really ever been like specifically studied though yeah. from what i've seen we don't know in the study how long these patients have had anxiety right. oh yeah. right that's so point too. so we don't know if this is acute if this is chronic right and and the other thing is like you don't really you it's hard to know even from like well, for like when it was diagnosed to how long they've actually had it too. You know I mean? Like those two things are, are different. A lot of people go for a long time before they get a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, you know? True. That's they, true. They said, so they, they had the primary diagnosis of GAD, but they hadn't received remission after a minimum. They had at least eight weeks of treatment. Um, <laughs> so they didn't get, yeah, they didn't go into details of how long they had it. They just said that they had been treated eight weeks of standard treatment um which again they didn't i wish they would have kind of talked more about what they their standard treatment was i wasn't sure what 
type of medication they were on, what kind of therapy they were getting. Um, but they just said eight weeks, <laughs> eight, eight weeks of standard treatment prior to um, participating in the study. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's also, yeah, critical. You want to know like what was done and is eight weeks, you know, an adequate amount of time for that, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Because one of the, one of the standard treatments, Dr. Guasco, um, I mean, we know anxiety, depression go hand in hand. What I have seen with some primary care physicians, they will prescribe an SSRI. And we know that that often takes a little while to actually have a therapeutic dosing effect, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times, um, you know, as far as at least in my training, um, I mean, you also have people in this study that have comorbid or other comorbid psychiatric conditions as well, which also makes it a little challenging too. But um, the, uh, which is typical. I mean, GAD comes along with a lot of other stuff typically. Um, but, or at least one other diagnosis, access one. Um, but uh, um, when, I, when, you know, my training, we, we were basically trained that like, it usually takes higher doses of antidepressants to treat um, anxiety disorders, particularly OCD, but sometimes even like, even the generalized anxiety disorder category as well. So it could even be that they needed higher doses of meds, you know, it just depends on, yeah. you know, uh, what they were, what that treatment looked like. Right. Potentially higher doses of meds, longer time for the medica medication to have its therapeutic effect. Right. Um, okay. I, I thought, I thought one area where the study probably could have improved was having a control group where those patients continued on a standardized Western medicine, if we want to say, um, treatment plan with medications and and maybe cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. and and then the other treatment group having maybe that and omt and then another group just having maybe omt and and tracking those outcomes i think that would have made the study a little bit stronger would you yeah. guys agree yeah. with that i agree Definitely, definitely agree. Or even a crossover, like they had mentioned too, which I think is a good study design too, where you, you know, what both both groups, treatment groups get uh, both arms get the OMT, but at different, you know, at some point there's a crossover of treatment, so you can see the effects. Um, yeah, actually, I didn't really just... I didn't really understand yeah. what they were saying with that. So if you want to explain. Right. A little bit more. I'm trying to, I'm going to try to pull up a. Uh, I'll come back to that because I'm going to try to okay. pull up a, a little schematic. Okay. For, for that. What What do you guys think if they would have done? You know, some of these studies they do. You know, sham. We call it sham OMT. Um, what do you guys think if they would have done? You know, added added that to the treat like the study. You know, some patients received. You know. I guess real, you know, real OMT and then versus sham. Yeah, that's, that is the forever debated question. What is sham <laughs> OMT? What is that? <laughs> I like, I like, um, I think sham and static touch should also always be used as, as uh, control variables. So sham um, is kind of like, 
is, is essentially putting your hands on them because some people would argue that there is a heat transference. There is an energy. If you want to go with that sort of notion transference from, from one provider to the, to the patient. So you kind of have to also assess with, is there, I guess it might be this as equivalent as saying the placebo effect. If, if I'm just putting my hands on that aren't tailored towards the, the therapeutic sort of approach that we would do with our techniques and they still have improvement, well, was it the techniques or was it simply because someone's hands was put on them? Um, and so that's typically what I understand sham and static touch um, control variables to, to be. But uh, I do like them being compared. Mm-hmm. So static touch would be no motion, hands-on. Sham treatment would be... Uh, some people would argue like you could do um, uh, like a sort of a, a soft tissue massage. We're not doing it muscle energy. We're not doing stills. We're not articulating through the joint, but more just like kind of moving the hands to side to side. Um, but yeah. What's interesting is that in the article, they talk about hands on touch. So I guess what Mick is referring to is static, yeah, touch. static touch. They say hands-on touch, what Mick is calling static touch, activates the beta and C-tactile receptors, which releases oxytocin and down-regulates the HPA access. Huh. Oh, so the release of oxytocin, they're talking about how it contributes to systemic effects such as decreasing heart rate, blood pressure, and decreasing sensitivity to pain stimuli and um, global anxiolytic effects. So it seems that just, I mean, we probably should read this article and go a little bit more in depth of understanding this, but that hands-on touch alone is going to elicit oxytocin and potentially have anxiolytic effects. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And that, and that kind of, again, that's interesting going going back to the the back anxiety inventory, you know, one of the, if, if they were thinking that like, well, why didn't that reduce that score? Because one of the questions, you know, is heart pounding, racing, you know, sympathetic tone for thinking oxytocin, you know, that kind of thought process, why did that, why didn't it affect, you know, the physiological symptoms more right? uh, based off of, you know, what, um, what Dr. Green just said. (laughs) Yeah. In, Interesting. In, in your guys' uh, discussions on in your journal clubs, because um, I remember when I was going through uh, OMM training, um, the journal clubs, and even as a student coming to some of them, like the SCS meetings, uh, statewide campus uh, days, when we talked about articles, it was always like so difficult to figure out how best you can organize a study so that you can you know, with this, you know, with this control group thing, it's, it's always been the bane of, you know, <laughs> the osteopathic research world's, you know, existence. And how do you, so is there, is there a talk about what are the, the, the most effective means of, uh, of, of getting around that with, is it sham? Is it, uh, do you not do control? Like, like what, what is the talk lately? We, as far as the discussions that I've been, we haven't had that discussion about 
what is sham OMT or how to perform sham OMT. What I have seen in some of the studies is that people are just, people are doing OMT and looking at objective measures pre and post treatment. Okay. For example, with ultrasound, looking at shear wave elastography. And I know of a study right now looking at the, um, the myotone pro looking at tissue density pre and post OMT treatment, but I haven't heard anything about sham. <clears throat> sham. I, uh, when I was building out, uh, my research study that I was hoping would catch a little bit more interest. It, it, basically it's, it kind of got shot down basically because of what you're referring to though, is how, how can we actually conduct this in a very evidence-based fashion? And one of the biggest problems is exactly what we just said, the sham versus, static touch versus treatment. And that's kind of what I proposed was okay. I would do no touch, static touch and treatment. Cause sham from what I was seeing was, uh, was, was more just superficial, treating around the, or putting your hands around the same areas and just kind of moving your hand with almost literally no organization to it. Mm. Um, as that was kind of done on the HRV studies, the heart rate variability <laughs> studies, uh, evaluating whether or not we impact the, you know, the autonomic system and improve that variability. And I saw that also with studies where they're, uh, they try to investigate the same sort of aspect with premature delivered neonates who are typically, um, they're blunted or for lack of better words, uh, less developed in a lot of their uh, parasympathetic tone, I get, I believe, because that actually develops later in, in um, embryology. So it, they were investigating whether or not we can help balance that quicker for these premature individuals. And a lot of them just talked about how the best way to create that control was to show, well, we're doing study techniques or at least described and defined this person just put their hands on them and then this person just moved their hands around and it, it did help build a sort of validity and statistical significance for the studies that i was reading but again uh, the other problem is because we are human based we're not pharmaceutically pill based the sample sizes are drastically challenging more challenging than i would imagine are mm -hmm. more uh, chemically grounded research studies. You mean you need yeah. more individuals? Yeah, in order to really understand whether or not that control was a good enough control. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because for the most part, it was, I think the largest OMM study I saw was uh, 55 patients. Um, and even though they were saying for for the study to get bigger and better, it would need to be at least 200. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Another question that I had related to this study is that they saw the patients every week for is it five or seven visits. Uh, I want to say it was five. Yeah, um, it was, yeah, I think it was five on average. Five on average, yeah. Mm -hmm. So any thoughts on whether the timing of treating a patient with GAD or generalized anxiety weekly versus, I mean, we see our patients six to eight weeks, you know, apart from visit one and two. 
do you think that plays into the therapeutic effect seeing the patient more frequently? What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. On a with in re, in respect to anxiety, I would say the the more routine visits would make more sense because I knew. But at the same time, I know it's really important in psychi in the psychi- psychiatric world to quote unquote allow for the passage of time um, to really investigate whether or not that sort of therapy, whether it's CBT versus pharmaceutical, is actually having a, a therapeutic effect. So I, I would also think that it might be important to have a separation of, of treatment days of, okay, let's treat, let's see if we can calm that down. Does it ramp back up? And then we can, mm. uh, I don't know, because it's also very subjective too with the pain scales, but with the, with the not pain scales, the GAD scores and the surveys. Um, that's a, yeah, that's an actually an interesting question yeah i would say it's certainly not standard to be seeing somebody that frequently unless you're doing weekly psychotherapy with somebody um i mean even in our pain world right in our in our uh like you said uh, dr green in our in our clinic we're seeing patients pretty far apart so um i I mean i guess It's not unreasonable, and it definitely fits into a study design to see somebody frequently like that. Obviously, they're not going to space it out that far because that's that's to be a long study, right? Um, But and I think it'd be hard to speak, you know, the detriments versus the benefits on either side. I mean, obviously, they're getting more attention paid to the, uh, you know, to the body work side of things, which you know I'm sure most patients would love, you know, Um, and especially if they're feeling tense and tight all the time, you know. I'm sure they like being treated every week, but, uh, so there is that, but I think, yeah, I think that it would have been, I think it's a pretty short, I guess in terms of time frame in general at the study, I think having it more of a longitudinal study, like maybe over the course of a year, you know, rather than, um, it was only eight, eight weeks, relatively short time. I mean, we're, just kind of talking about, I, I think it takes, it takes longer, you know, to even, I, I think get to get patients better, um, sometimes in eight weeks or to show improvement. But I think doing it, that's a, that's a tough one. Yeah. Cause in our clinic, I mean, it's every, usually, usually like four to six weeks, unless you're, at least for me, if I'm thinking someone needs to be seen quicker, if they just had surgery or, you know, something like that, to, um, to get them moving a little bit better. But, um, yeah, I would tend to agree that doing it every week would, um, the patients probably loved it, <laughs> but I think, sure. I think having it over, you know, maybe once a month, I think would be, I think more realistic. I don't know Is that, you know what I mean? More applicable. But, well, the thing is, I think you, you can't really generalize it to the, you know, to what you're going to do in the clinic, in your clinics anyway, because yes, it fits into a study design and otherwise it's cost prohibitive to have these longitudinal studies out for a year, you know, not to mention, like you said, uh, uh, I can't remember who mentioned it, but like um, having a ton of patients that you need to, you know, in order to separate from control, if you're going to try to do this that way and figure out, you know, if OMT was really helpful versus these other types of hands-on treatment. I mean, you're talking a lot more patients and a lot more time. And so it's, it's kind of, 
cost prohibitive in a lot of, in, in, in a sense. So it's hard to generalize some of this stuff to, you know, mm-hmm. the applicability of what we do in our, in our day-to-day sort of clinic. But, um, but it gives, I think it gives a general sense of, um, you know, I think it really is interesting that, you know, some of these scores were decreased quite significantly, you know, on these, uh, mm-hmm. on these scales, you know, as much as you would see with a, with a, with a medication regimen, you know? Mm -hmm. I thought they brought up a really interesting point and I'm just going to read this. They say osteopathic manipulative therapy. um, I guess we could all say treatment for us serves to address the physical tension in the body in an effort to reduce the afferent sensory and nociceptive feedback processes that dysregulate emotional response. So I thought, this article was really did a, did a pretty good job at linking how working with the body, working with the soma may downregulate nociception, which we know when people are, have more pain, they're usually more emotionally charged, usually more irritable, usually less patient. And potentially I wonder, you know, what is their self perception? You know, We've talked in in previous podcasts, Dr. Guasco, about um, living in your body with with a sense of health versus a sense of fear. And so I I just thought that was a really interesting sentence. Yeah, yeah, it's that's goes on to the next level of, of, again, things we've talked about in the past uh, podcasts about this connection between you know, people's, uh, physical sensations and their, um, you know, their, their, their presence in their body, the anxiety and mood symptoms they feel secondary to the pain that they have. Um, and I mean, there's a lot, I mean, a lot of patients just, they're not, they're not aware of their physical form that much at all. Right. Especially if they're hurting either mentally or physically, right. They're only aware of like, you know, that things hurt, but they don't have much other experience in their body. And, uh, you know, you put, a lot of times in the in clinic, you know, you put your hands on a patient and they had no idea how much they, how sore they are, or what, how much things don't move until you actually are there with them. You know, it's like, they just are checked out of it, uh, of their physical form. It's really interesting. Yeah. So Dr. Guasco, I mean, you, you split your time between, OMM and OMM practice and psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Does reading this article at all alter how you practice in any way? Um, not really. From I mean, I, I'm glad to see that it changes some of these these scores. And well, I guess it I guess it could. So, you know, if I'm seeing patients in my clinic, um, in the psychiatry clinic and, you know, they have real significant, uh, you know, anxiety disorder, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, and we're falling short on treatment with medication from the standpoint of it's getting towards remission or um, just they're having side effects or whatever it is that we can't up medications or, you know, whatever. I think that this is, um, you know, depending on the person in, in their comfort level, this would be a, a great avenue. And some people already get, you know, massages and stuff like that, and that helps them. And, but to have a, a paper that's got an evidence, 
you know, some evidence behind, you know, a reduction in these, in these scales. I think that it's a great thing to be able to bring up to patients and say, Hey, we have a, there's, I mean, there's, there's some literature supporting this and this could be a, you know, another, you know, another avenue for treatment. Um, so I guess in that way, you know, uh, obviously there's some, there's some significant issues with the study from, again, like the most osteopathic studies have from the standpoint of the controls and that sort of thing. But um, I think the risk is low and there's some evidence here that says that, you know, it could be helpful. So I think that would change my, my practice to some degree. I may already mm -hmm. kind of do that. I maybe not so much me cause I already kind of do this stuff, but like, I think for people that, um, that are kind of quasi aware of, you know, alternative complementary alternative sort of treatments for, uh, psychiatric conditions, which I think they mentioned at the beginning of the, like people are interested in this stuff. Now they want a, a more well-rounded treatment plan as opposed to just medications, um, mm. and, and psychotherapy. So looking for other things and, and docs having some other, you know, evidence to support referrals to these places, uh, like our clinic at MSU, I think it is, uh, is a really nice addition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, and I just want to be really clear about the, the results from the study. So they said ultimately 62% of the patients and the N was 16 of the sample demonstrated a 50% reduction in the HAM-A symptoms from baseline at visit one to their last visit, visit five or visit seven. Um, and just to give, for those who don't know about the, the Hamilton anxiety rating scale, it's basically 14 questions with zero being not present, one mild, two moderate, three severe, and four very severe. And they go through different questions like your anxious mood, rate it from zero to four, tension. And they have little subcategories where they define tension, feeling of tension, fatigability, startle response, move to tears. Another category of fear, insomnia, intellectual category of difficulty in concentrating poor memory. So anybody can find it online. But um, yeah, so, so some data, so some, some good data showing OMT reducing at least in 62% of the, um, the patients significantly statistically significant of reducing their ham a anxiety scores. So anything else we wanted to talk about, bring up. Uh, I just wanted to mention the crossover is basically you, everybody receives each arm receives the same sequence of treatments. They just do it in different, you know, uh, in a, in a different order. Does that make sense? So either you get treatment as usual and then OMT or OMT and then treatment as usual, but so we're in the, in the middle of the study, you, you cross it over so that each, each group gets, so they had mentioned that I think even in the, um, they did in the, yeah, in the article. So what are, are they trying to say that maybe based on the timing of when they received OMT, there could be a difference in outcome or I guess I'm trying to understand what's that going to add? Um, I think it's just another way to um, maybe reduce, reducing like uh, confounding variables or something like that. Like I'm not, 
that I, I think because I, I even in a study that I was gonna take part in at MSU here that's hasn't quite gotten off the ground, but with CBT and OMT, um, the design we decided was gonna be the most effective to have it a crossover as well. Um, and I think it just can help separate. Hold on, my dog's gonna bark. Separate chance from uh, from the actual, um, you know, uh, intervention that you're trying to do. I see. So just another, another kind of way to improve your outcomes, or at least make it clear. Okay. Huh. Well, great, Barry. Did you want to say any any? Any other remarks, any other comments, anything that you wanted to bring up? Um, I think, I think we covered most, yeah, pretty much everything I wanted to touch on. Um, yeah, no, that was, I'm good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, thank you for bringing this article to our attention. I, I also, I also just want to throw out there this idea that Yes, I, I believe touch can increase oxytocin levels and, and research studies have shown that and that's been measured. But I also wonder, not just physical touch, but physical touch plus empathy or plus like a profound respect for the person in front of you. Um, I don't know if you want to throw the word out there, love, kindness, compassion, like what that does to anxiety and patient outcome as far as GAD. That's, I don't know how you measure that, right? Maybe there are certain things that you just can't measure, but are nonetheless real. And maybe we just haven't figured out yet how to measure these things. Um, and, and potentially, I don't know, osteopathic treatments, I don't want to say are, are teetering on that, but I think that we, we still struggle to, to find comprehensive objective ways to measure what we do um and, and i think it's so much more than physical touch i guess that's the point i'm trying to make so okay well any other final comments <laughs> no for your time it was great and uh hopefully we'll be continuing to discuss other osteopathic articles throughout the rest of, of this year. So thanks again for your time. Have a wonderful evening and we'll see you guys in clinic. Thanks for having thanks, me on. Thanks. Thanks, for, thanks for, thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks Barry. Thanks Barry. Thanks Dr. Bosco. Have a great see day. You guys. Yep. Bye. 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 you enjoyed this discussion and learned a little more about how treating the body may affect the mind. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to be on the podcast, please email the onmmpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Be well, be curious, and spread osteopathy. Mm-hmm.